You know, life is full of choices. And by that I mean we have a lot of things that we have to decide to do as we go through life. Probably the first choice that was important to me that I can, as I can remember back when I was growing up, and I think most young men would agree with this, is your first car. That supersedes anything, even young ladies. Um, cars are far more important when you're growing up. It, it just is. It's just a way of life. And I remember, you know, the first one I got, which was a 57 Cadillac of all things. It was, it was not cool, but that's just the way it was. It's something that landed into my lap and I had it. I think the second, I don't know what ladies' first choice is in life or what they're thinking about as far as their first major decision. That's just something that you understand what you went through when you were growing up. I think probably the second choice that men and women or young children have to make is always going to be college. That's a, that's a big major decision that has to come along as to where you're going to go and then what are you going to do while you're in college? What are you going to take? And I don't know how many young people I know of in the past several years have gone to college and wind up changing their major about midway. My son was going to be in television broadcasting uh, after two years and, and he was, had always been doing IT work even in high school. Uh, <clears throat> we sent him to California to get all sorts of certifications before he graduated from high school. He was certified in networking before there even was networking in, in schools. Uh, Tyler Junior College didn't even teach networking when he was already certified with two different certifications. But he wanted to go into TV broadcasting and he did some radio broadcasts but finally wound up in IT and has been in that for 25 years I guess and he's kind of worn out on that. You know, and from then, when you get out of college, you've got your profession to think about, what you're going to, to be as, as a person as far as you're, you're uh, earning a living. You're going to have to decide which city you want to live in, where, you, where you're going to live when you get there. These, these are major decisions that we all make in life that are major ones that come across us. And then when you, you know, start working at a business with people, you have to choose your friends selectively. Uh, by that, I mean we as Christians don't want to just hang out in, in, in bars and places where there are problems. We like to hang out with people that are basically good people and people that think somewhat like we do. Because as it says, iron's going to sharpen iron and you want to be around somebody who's really got some sense. And believe me, there's a lot of people out there today that do not have any sense whatsoever. And it is, uh, it, it's getting worse as, as I'll you know, mention to you as we're going to see. So we have decisions as to what to choose, what is going to be best for us in the long run as far as what we're trying to accomplish in life. And in many, many cases, you know, you have that what they call the gut feeling where you just have to make a choice and see what happens. There, there's really no guarantee of it. And as I look back over my life, and I think you will too, as you think of some of the choices that you made, some of those choices were good and worked out very well. Some of them, you know, did not work out very well. And then there are those, hopefully just a few, that you look at and you think, how in the world could I have been so stupid to choose something like that? And then you have to pick up the pieces and move forward. There's not much you can do about correcting the mistake. The mistake's already been made, and you just have to, to correct it. Well, when we look at the political arena, and believe me, this is not a sermon about politics, so bear with me. You know, there are people who, who want to make a choice that vote. 
There are those that, that want to make a choice but don't want to vote. My dad was in that category. He complained and had, he was fit to be tied about politics all of his life, but he never would, whatever would vote. He always said, my vote doesn't matter. And yet I always told him that, you know, one of these two people are going to be in there, so you might as well decide what you want to do. But if you don't want to do anything, then there's not a whole lot you can do to complain about it. But, you know, it's, it's just a fact that, that we have this opportunity, this great opportunity, really, to, to make a choice as to who's going to direct and lead our country. And like I said, this is not a, a sermon about politics. It's not about voting. It's not about being liberal. It's not even about being conservative. It's about man in general. And the problem that we are faced with people, with men, the problem that confronts us from day to day as people and as a country from year to year as we go through some of these things. And what is it going to lead to and where is it all going to end? You know, it's, a, it's an answer to life that a lot of people would like to have because they just frankly don't know. And you and I have that great privilege of understanding where this is going to lead, what lies beyond, where there will be success, and in many cases where there will not. And when you try to explain that to people who come to you and want answers, because they look at you in many cases like a sensible person. They, they, they do look at Christians for the most part. They look at them as being a little extreme, but for the most part they make good decisions, they make good choices, and they're in control of their lives. That's the way they look at us. They may not like us very much sometimes because of the things we believe. And a lot of times when they ask you a question, they really would like an answer. But they're not going to like your answer sometimes because you're going to be talking about God and God's Word. And they don't like to hear that. Because once you begin to embrace God, once you begin to embrace His Word, what are you left with? You're left with having to make a change. You're left with having to have responsibility of things that you need to do. As Peter said, you know, when these people came to him after his sermon in the book of Acts, what must we do to be saved? And he said, repent and be baptized, which involves changing of all things. And people don't like that word change because they're comfortable with where they are, with what they're doing. So this sermon, it's about choices that are made. And the failure of man, because that's where it all is. The problem is, is not with the choices that are made, but it's, it's the failure of man and what it leads to in so many cases. And it is, it is going to answer the question in the end that a lot of people want to know but don't want the answer to. But the, answer, the question is, is, is man capable of ruling himself? Of course, you and I understand that's not going to be the case. It's not going to happen. We think we can. We, we think we've got all the answers. We, we, we believe that we know what's going to take place and that we're going to solve everything. But in the end, you and I have this word of God in front of us and that we read it and we know it. We know a little bit about what God has in store for us. The main thing is we know that man's not going to survive. Man's not going to be able to correct the mistakes because we choose not to do that. We're going to talk about choices and choices that were made down through history. And I think it's going to surprise you who made the choices and how poorly those choices were. Not so much the choices that were made, like I said, but the failure of man after those choices were made. When, I, when we talk of, of making 
the right choices about things. One of the best ways I think to understand this are percentages. And I'll use the NFL for an example because if, for those of you that watch sports, I don't watch very many. I try to watch the Cowboys when they're winning, but they are doing okay this year. But other than that, I don't watch sports. But if you'll notice, most of these sports programs before the game start, whether it's baseball, basketball, football, soccer, hockey, whatever, they'll have some old coaches or old players that will come on and they'll begin to analyze each of these games and they'll try to give you their thoughts on who's going to win the game. And this person will say, well, we believe this team's going to win. This person over here will say, we believe this other team's going to win. And after so many weeks, they'll put their percentages up there. You know, and a couple of them may be, you know, six and one or eight and two. Uh, some of them over here may be two and eight and not be doing very well. And so you'll get a good percentage of who's right and who's wrong. And we are graded in many cases by how well we can, you know, do these percentages, how well we, we come through with things when we make decisions. The thing we're going to look at this morning is a number of four decisions that were made, four choices that were made. Three of them were horrible, turned out horribly. One of them was in question, it turned out okay, but it was filled with a number of problems along the way. And I think it's going to be interesting when you find out the choices of who they were made by. Uh, you may have already guessed it, but anyway, we're going to get to that and you're going to find out that it's not always, like I said, because of the choices that are made, but it's because of the failure of mankind and what we, for some reason, tend to do over and over and over again in life in, in our, the way we do things and conduct ourselves. It just doesn't turn out right. If you would, turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 7, and we will read about the first choice that was made. The choice was made by God himself. These are four choices that were of major importance for God's plan and what God was beginning to do. And all these particular situations had monumental problems that we're faced with. But keep in mind, the choice that was made was not a bad choice. It was the failure of mankind, which is what we are dealing with today in life, what we have dealt with since the beginning of creation. And you could go back and even look at Adam and Eve that God chose, God created, God brought life to them and gave them everything he could possibly give them. And what happened to Adam and Eve? Tremendous failure. And it wasn't because of God's choice, was it? God created them perfectly. And for a period of time, they had this relationship that you and I have a hard time understanding, talking, walking with God day in and day out in a Garden of Eden where everything is perfect and everything is wonderful. And then to go against God and to tarnish that relationship that was there to where it was irrevocable and we're still facing that that's why Jesus as you know had to come to clean up the mess that we are guilty of as people but Adam and Eve were that first choice that God made you understand that you know that the second one was were the people of Israel God says in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6 for you are a holy people to the Lord your God the Lord your God has chosen you to be a special people to himself above all people that are on the face of the earth. 
You know, the people of Israel were not anything special from the Gentile world necessarily. They weren't any better in any way off, as he goes to point out here. God did it, and God chose them because he was beginning to do something to redeem mankind. He started with, with Abraham. And, you know, we look at God and we think, well, God should have just started right over when Adam and Eve sinned, redeemed Adam and Eve, started all this to take place and happen and correct and make everything perfect once again. But as you know, God doesn't necessarily do that. God takes his time in doing things and beginning to change things as we go through life. <clears throat> and he started with Abraham, and then he began to work through people by the name of Israel. He said, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, as the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is a God, faithful God, which keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. So God chose the people and explains here why he chose them and what he was going to do with them. And it was for a reason to, to begin to redeem mankind from the failures that mankind was guilty of. And God was going to have to do something to redeem mankind because at that point in time we were lost. There was no recovery and anything that we could do until Jesus Christ came, of course. He told the people of Israel, and you don't have to turn there, but over in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19, he says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your seed may live. And so he allowed mankind, even the people of Israel, he chose the freedom to decide what they wanted to do. You know, one of the things that, that always is, is hard to understand for, for us is of everything that the people of Israel witnessed and of everything that they saw as they came out of Egypt, lived in Egypt for over 400 years, and as they came out of Egypt, of all the things that they witnessed and experienced directly from God's hand in their lives, and in God caring for them those 40 years in the wilderness, how that they could, could reject God still and want to go their own way. You know, people today, you know, and some of your friends may say this, because I've heard a few people say this, you know, they just, they wonder why in the world when tragedies occur, why God doesn't step in and do something if there is a God. That's one of the first questions they ask. They say, if there is a God, then why doesn't he step in and do something? Well, the Bible explains that, but if you try to explain it to them, they're not going to be too interested because they, they really don't want to know. But God has not intervened and done anything at this point because he's given man the freedom to accept him or to reject him. And for the most part, people have rejected him. And there's enough proof in life and through the world and through history and down through the ancient times going back to Adam and Eve that there is a God and that he does exist and that he does care. The problem is so many people, they just don't. You know, God gave his laws to people and he told them, the people of Israel, that they had to make a decision because those laws were there for two different for two specific reasons. One was to avoid the problems that sin causes 
and to make life better for people. You know, the obvious thing that we could talk about, we could make another sermon on that. If, if you look at God's laws, just the Ten Commandments alone, embracing one of those and living by one of those would change people's lives dramatically. You know, thou shalt not commit adultery. What a change that would make. You know, the people that I know that work for me that have lived with two or three different ladies or have been divorced twice and have three or four kids or five kids in the case of a couple of them who are less than 30 years old, they're never going to recover in life. They just aren't. The child support alone kills them and they can't, they can't get away from it. So embracing that would make up change in people's lives. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. You know, basic commandments would make a world of change in our society today if, if just one of them were followed. But that's asking a little too much. The other reason God gave people his laws was to avoid from dying during God's judgment when Christ returns. And, you know, a lot of people don't understand that. I don't think a lot of people believe that. I think as time goes on, um, they, they say, well, if God's going to return, you know, he could have returned sooner, but he hasn't. So if, they're, if we're just going to keep going like we are, I guess there probably is no God. I mean, I've heard people tell me that. And it's frustrating when you try to explain to them that, no, there is a God. He is going to intervene. It's just not the right time yet. But they don't understand so much of that. And it's a shame because there's so much that's answered in this book that you and I understand. You know, if we could, if we could get people to make choices say they make a hundred choices a day if they could make the right choice more and more each day to direct their lives a certain direction life would ultimately get better for people and the one thing that we strive for as parents or as grandparents is that we hope that each generation that succeeds us will get better at life that's really what we're here for to teach children and grandchildren to avoid making the same mistakes that we have made. And we, we would really hope that they could do that. I think in some cases uh, that does work. You know, the, the ability of, of knowledge with what's available to children today and, grandch and the grandchildren, I, I, I tell you, it's, it's phenomenal. When you see a four or five-year-old sitting there with the iPad or iPhone like this, I can't even keep up with it. And, and they know so much now at, at four or five or six years old compared to when I was growing up. It, it is phenomenal. And what we have to get people to realize is that not all knowledge is good and necessary. You know, we can go back and look at Adam and Eve. You know, was all knowledge good and necessary? No, it was a, it was a mistake. It was a disaster. But that's the way people are. We hope that we can help young people get better with each succeeding generation to avoid these mistakes and so we try to tell them and show them and point them in the right direction and God says I've given you the opportunity to choose one or the other so whatever you choose is going to determine what your future is like well to go back to the people of Israel <clears throat> the people of Israel witnessed so much it is it is almost impossible to understand completely how they could turn their back on God the way they did. But they did. Over in 1 Samuel chapter 8, a very pivotal scripture in the history not only of mankind but in the history of Israel where 
they basically said to God, we don't want you anymore. We want to go our own direction. He says here in 1 Samuel 8 and verse 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Hearken to the voice of the people. Haven't we heard that before in politics? The voice of the people. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful voice. Great experience, great understanding. This is what the people want, so let's give it to them what they want. Hearken to the voice of the people, for they have said unto you, They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. <clears throat> And so God was, I'm sure, very disheartened. Um, he even mentioned back in the first parts of De Deuteronomy that the people of Israel would eventually want to be like the other nations and have a king. Uh, he understood that. God has this ability, as you well know, to look down through history a little bit and see how things are going to transpire and what's going to take place because of, of the way people are and the way people do things. And it's tragic. It was a horrible situation. They wanted a king to be like all the other nations around them. And so God gave them the government of man. That's what they wanted. That's what they desired. And when, when, you, when you think about what was at stake there, and you read the rest of that chapter, you, you understand why we are in the situation we are in today. It's just gotten a lot worse than what it was back then. <clears throat> Taxes people that are called upon to do service for the government, all the misguidance that takes place, all the corruption, the lack of judgment, the, um, the egos, the, the power, the, the, the dominance over, over other things. Uh, we could go on and on about that, but that's basically where it came from was because of the government of man. And you have to understand what God was trying to do and accomplish. God knew that people did not want him to rule over them, his own people that witness and experience so much. So he gave them a king. But down through history, God knew that there had to be law and order through society. And so he had and allowed imperfect human governments to control the world. It was either God or it was either man. And so man chose that they didn't want God. They wanted man. So that's what happened. And, and to spend a little more time on this if you want, read the book of Daniel, chapter 2. You know, what did, what did God tell Daniel through, or tell Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel through the prophecy he gave through Daniel was the fact that there were going to be world governments. The head of gold, the, the, the next one was that of silver, the brass, and of uh, those different elements that he was going to have there. And the reason being was he didn't meet, give specific names as to who these people were going to be, but he said this is the way society is going to go. And God had to have human governments there to maintain a certain amount of order, if you will, throughout the world until God's plan was finished and until Christ came and they gave his life and until Jesus came and returned the second time to take over the governments of this world. So there had to be law and order within society. Otherwise, it would just be what? Anarchy. Chaos. Complete confusion. And that's not what God wanted. And when, you, when people say, well, why did he give us man? Well, that's what man wanted, was mankind. And when you deal with men, what do you deal with? Doesn't matter what choice you have as to who's going to be the best or the greatest. We're imperfect. And we tend to fail. As we're going to look at the second choice of God, one of his major choices was King Saul. But when you look at the people of Israel, 
you know, basically what mankind is doing is we are reaping what we have sown from the very beginning. Now, now granted, God dealt with mankind through the very beginning, and it was so bad that there had to be a flood to destroy everything. That, that again, by itself is hard to grasp how it could be much worse than it is today. But when it says their heart was continually set on evil, um, that's an expression I don't think we'll ever understand until God's kingdom, where God can explain it to us. But it was bad enough he had to destroy the whole world, and he started over with Noah, who, I might also add, was not a perfect individual. You know, God chose Noah and his family, and we still wound up with some of the same problems we have, although it prolonged things a little while so that God could continue working his plan. Isaiah chapter 1. There's so much we could discuss in this, as you well know, and, and you can see where we're headed with this. But the people of Israel are no different than we are today. We're very, very similar in our thoughts. As hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, For the Lord has spoken, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. When you look at our nation, our founding fathers, the laws that we have, the Constitution that was based upon God's law for the most part, we would never have turned out the way we have today as a nation if it hadn't been for basing it and founding it on God's Word. There are so many foundational principles in there that are so wonderful that we are where we are today and blessed far more than any nation and the greatest of all nations have ever been on the face of this earth. If it wasn't for us, this world would be a different world. It's just, it's just the way it is. It says, The ox knows his owner and the ass his master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people does not consider. A sinful nation, a people laden with sin, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger, and they have gone away backward. And... You know, I shudder for the things that we are doing as a people and have done over the last several years with what we have incorporated within our society to think that God is not angry with us as a people. Because you and I have to live here too. And if God is angry at his people and God brings certain things upon his people, certain forms of punishment to get our attention, then you and I have to go through it too. And your kids and your grandkids, just like mine, are going to have to, you know, face that. Um, much like, you know, Jeremiah, who went into captivity as a prophet. Um, that's pretty tough, being a prophet, giving prophecies of what God was going to do to the people. And yet Jeremiah did that and actually went through some of those prophecies and had to live there in captivity with his people. But that's, that's something that uh, we just have to, to face up to. You know, we're not perfect. We're not better than anybody else. And it's only because of God's mercy and grace that we're where we are today. Because He truly has given us mercy and grace through His Holy Spirit, as you well know. Over in 1 Samuel chapter 9, Israel made a big mistake. And so God gave them a king. And God gave them Saul. Saul was a man who was an interesting individual, to say the least. 1 Samuel chapter 9 verse 15 says the Lord said Samuel told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came saying tomorrow about this time I will send you a man out of the hand out of the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be captain over my people Israel 
that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines and so on. And when Samuel, verse 17, saw the Saul, the Lord said unto him, Behold, the man whom I spoke of you, this same shall reign over my people. So they didn't choose their own king, you know, understand that. God chose the man Saul. And Saul was a very, very capable person. He was taller than most anybody. He was very handsome. He was a humble man when he first started out as king. Probably very, very shocked that God would give him this responsibility, which he did. And he understood who God was. You know, again, God even talking to these men and having contact with them like he did with Saul and David and Solomon, which we're going to discuss. You think that it would have made an impact on them, but it, it, it really did not help as time went on because they did the same thing that most people tend to always do. And that is, they take too much on themselves and think that, you know, my hand has done this or my hand has done that, and they don't become humble or stay humble. They become arrogant, and we see that today so many, many times of people who are put in office and the arrogance, the egos, the control of, of people with the power and everything uh, is beyond what we really need to have. And yet that's the way that all mankind has basically gone from the beginning of creation. We think we've got it figured out better than God does, so to speak. We've got a better way to do things that's going to help because this is what the voice of the people is, as you well know. Doesn't turn out very well. In the end, Saul became jealous. He was disobedient. He did things that he shouldn't do. God became very frustrated with him. And then, you know, the, the man Saul was even anointed, as you can see over here in chapter, I think, verse chapter 10, that he was anointed with the Holy Spirit, just like David and Solomon. So the Holy Spirit is no guarantee that a person is going to be perfect or that a person is going to follow God. I mean, it helps, but it's our decision. That's why Paul warned us and said that hopefully, you know, a person doesn't, once they've received the, whole, received the Holy Spirit, turn his back and walk away. Because you still have that freedom to do that. God does not force anything upon us. And when you hear people tell you that, you know, well, you know, we just need God to come down here and, and show us things and, and do, do things for us. It wouldn't make any difference for us. It didn't for the people of Israel. You know, look at what they experienced. Look what they witnessed down through history. And it's such a tragic state of what they went through. Saul, in the end, was rejected by God in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 26. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return unto you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So again, if you think about the percentage aspect of it, from God choosing Israel, God choosing Saul, and we're yet to go through David and Solomon briefly. Um, it makes God look like a poor decision maker, doesn't it? And that's not the point. The point is, it says here, Saul rejected God's word. Saul did not want God to do certain things and handle certain things a certain way. His ego, his power, his own wisdom, as you, so to speak, think of it, brought about his fall. Next, let's talk about David. Wow, what a, what a person he was. The man after God's own heart. Man looked at a little different type of person when it came to David. David was short. 
David was good looking. He, he, was, he was tiny. He was a small person. Completely the opposite of Saul. And it says in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7, said, The Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on, your, on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, for a man looks on the outward appearance. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And yet, even though God chose David, even though God looked upon David and, and upon David's heart, and David was a man who truly was a man after God's own heart, but what a decision David made several times that cost him a lot. Got him into trouble. He was really no different than anybody else. The, the difference in David was that when David sinned and totally understood that he had sinned, he was truly repentant of that sin, as you well know. And he was willing to change and turn from it. But David was a bloody man. David was a man of war. You know, when you single out a lady's wife that you find attractive, and you plan to have him murdered and taken out of life like Uriah was, so that David could have Bathsheba, your hair stands on end, doesn't it? With that depth of precision and evil in a person's mind to do what he did. Yet David was truly an amazing person because even though he, he did do that, he did repent of it, he did change, he did understand what he did. And it shows the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, that when a, true, a person does truly repent and change and is genuine about it, that you and I still have a chance too because we are no more righteous than what David was. We are in the same situation. You know, David was, was this young boy when he was chosen. He was, of course, the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. He was a warrior. He was, a, he was one of the reasons that God would not allow him to build the temple that David so longed to do was because David was a bloody man. He was a man of war, and God said he couldn't do it. He, he did eventually transfer the capital to Jerusalem, which was really important. Uh, and of course, you know the Messiah was going to come from the seed of David. David, in many cases, was compared to Christ because of all the Psalms that he wrote and the Psalms that referred to Christ and, and the prophecies of, of Christ. David was a prophet, too. Most people don't think of that. But David, so many things David wrote about Christ were prophecies of what Jesus was going to be like and do. And of course, David is... You know, from all indications, the Bible is definitely going to be in God's kingdom and be over the people of Israel in the kingdom. So, here was another decision that God made in choosing a man who, who was totally the opposite of what Saul was, but wound up in the same circumstances with problems, with sin, with decisions that he thought were probably the right ones to make because of who he was. When people get into having power and too much power, sometimes it has to be too much power, just power, they can become a little bit crossways in life without too much trouble. And it goes to their head. Um, you know, when David finally admitted his sin in 2 Samuel 12, just briefly, when uh, Nathan the prophet came to him and told him that what he had done and he realized what had taken place and David was pleading and begging and praying to God that, that the child that Bathsheba was going to have would live and he, he was at that point repentant but God said the answer is no to healing this child the child's going to die 
and I'm sure it was just tore David to pieces. But that was God's answer to David, and David lived with that answer the rest of his life. And that was always something that David would never forget because of what he had done in taking life and taking matters into his own hand. And, you know, you have to ask yourself the question, as I think all of us do, is how could a man of his stature, with the contact he had with God, do what he did? Well, because people are people, and we fail too often as people. And it's tragic. It is truly a, a tragic situation. Let's go to Solomon very briefly. Solomon was a man, as you well know, that had so much going for him. He was, he was given opportunities to do so much. When you read in 1 Kings chapter 3, I think it is, 1 Kings chapter 3, in verse 5, God asked him, he said, ask what, you, what I shall give you. You know, what a, what a tremendous response Solomon had. And it, and it shows you what Solomon was like in the very beginning and what he wanted, what he was striving for. And he asked God, you know, that, he, that God had shown mercy to David, his father, and God had given him all things. And how that Solomon looked upon himself as being a little child, that he needed some help, he needed strength, he needed guidance. And he said, Give therefore, verse 9, your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this so great a people? You know, what an attitude that is for anybody who would be a leader who would be in charge of putting, you know, uh, a man who, as, as a king over a people like this. What a, what a great opportunity it would be. And to have the God of heaven look down and be very, very proud of that and give Solomon what he had. He said, because you have asked this thing and you have not asked yourself for long life, neither have asked for riches and all these other things, but have asked for an understanding heart. He said, behold, I will do according to your words. Lo, I have given you a wise and an understanding heart. This is the God of heaven that is talking and dealing with Solomon and that Solomon is dealing with. And what God did for him. And then when you come over to chapter 11, it's hard to imagine how a man could fall so quickly and so far with 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, you have to ask yourself, where is a man's thought processes have they have they left him you know how, how can you make so many mistakes sure he was he was at the pinnacle of Israel's epoch as, as a nation this is when they were the greatest nation on the face of the earth he had to maintain control of territory and of people and most of these marriages as you well know were nothing more than political alliances that's what was what was done we do things a little differently today we try to do peace treaties or whatever which doesn't too much either but but back then you know Solomon had all these wives because he felt that if you have somebody's daughter as your wife they're not going to attack you and try to kill you and there was going to be peace on your borders no matter you know what you have so he, but he had so many wives he didn't know what to do in life I'm sure because he had so many people he had to kind of keep happy and that doesn't work you know how that is it's just not going to work he tried to maintain the wealth that he would, had been given with all of, uh, all of the kingdom that came to him from Solomon or from David. And as God gave Solomon the, the wisdom and the heart and everything, 
he began to use that incorrectly. Uh, a lot of the forced labor he had on the people of Israel uh, in forcing them to work and do things to keep track of his lavish spending that he had became a problem. And the people became very unhappy with it. And Solomon began to get distracted. He spent more time spent building his own house than he did the temple of God, even though he did build the temple of God. And you just have to ask yourself the question, you know, how can a person fall so far so quickly? Because it happened very quickly. And so we look at leadership today along the same lines and we think, you know, how, how far can we go in this mess that we're in, we need to have somebody else brought in and we bring somebody else in, which we do, and we've done here recently. And the question is, was it going to work? That's what everybody's asking nowadays. Well, we have no idea. But I really think that if you look at Scripture, you look at the history of mankind, it's not going to be that much different until Jesus Christ returns and sets up His government. Now, we may have a few waves here and there that are better than what we've had in the past, but for the most part, we're going to have problems. We just are. You know, we could go on and on. You know, Jesus chose somebody to be one of his disciples. That turned out very poorly, didn't he? Judas. It wasn't because Judas was a bad choice. It's because Judas let other things interfere into his life. And that's, that's what we're dealing with. That's what we have to be aware of. And hopefully you and I have the ability with with God's Word and God's Spirit and the life that we try to live so faithfully and we're not perfect with it. We, we sin. We need to repent. That's why we have to take the Passover every spring because we have to correct the mistakes that we've made. But thankfully and hopefully they're not like the mistakes of some of these people that affect so many other people's lives. You know, there's, there's a difference between the sins you commit that affect you and the sins that you commit that affect other people. And you know, sin is still sin. It's just that we hope that the impact is so much less in what we do than what some of these men were guilty of. Because these, these people's sins affected the entire nation. And you could go through the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, and you see the same problem down through history. You know, most of these kings from both these nations were just pathetic. They were sinful. They didn't have much of a relationship at all with God. But God let time and chance continue. And because Israel said, we want a king rather than God, God let them have kings. And eventually it destroyed the nation. They, they both, as you know, had to go into captivity. Well, we look at what we've come to. In Romans 1 and verse 28, we see the result of what all of that has come to. With the choices that God has has given to us and we have chosen to reject God as people. I say as mankind for the most part. There's only a select few of us that God has chosen at this time to follow Him. But yet in Romans, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not fitting, not proper, not convenient. And because of that mind being void of God and because of refusing God's guidance, we wind up with the situations we have today. You know, the, the situation with climate change and global warming has become a religion, literally, where that is more important than anything in society. 
And it's a distraction because as you well know, like I do, that is not the issue facing mankind. What is facing mankind is sin. That's what's going to destroy the world were it not for God intervening. But people become distracted, people launch into these things, and you're, you know, we're guilty like I am. We are being called, uh, what's the term they use, uh, deniers. Uh, there's another term they use too. Um, but, but we're called the deniers because we don't believe in that. And, you know, they're wanting to penalize people that, that don't accept it and don't believe it. Well, I'm sorry, that's just the way life is. It's, my book said it's going to be something else that's going to affect mankind. And when you, speaking of that, I want to read a couple sentences to you from a book that I read here recently. It has to do with, with um, pursuing God and, and what mankind has done because this is where we are today. You reject God and you have to replace God with something. This book is entitled The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. And he says in here, we pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge within us that spurs us to the pursuit. As he said, no man can come to me. The impulse to pursue God originates with God. And as people, what, what we are doing is we have rejected God, but it, it, on the other hand, we are pursuing what we want to be a God or a religion or a belief because there is within our nature something that has to be replaced. And man has a thirst for God but doesn't know what that thirst is. You and I understand that. We found it because God has called us to him. And how isn't life so fulfilling and so wonderful for the most part because of knowing and understanding God? But when, when man removes God from his life and does not want anything to do with God, then what do we do? Well, we latch on to something to worship and to believe in, whether it's legitimate or not. And that's why when you go back into history in ancient times, when they removed God from their lives, what did they have? Paganism, mythology, all sorts of false gods and laws. And, and when you have these false gods and, and, and myths, about beings and everything, what did they have to go with it? Laws. Of all things, laws you had to follow. And they had sacrifices, animals and children, and people sacrifices. They had to pay the gods, you know, hopefully so that they'd have rain the next year. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, here is a God who's willing to do all this for us, but we reject God, and then what do we do is we put gods back in our lives, and some of these nations like Babylon, Egypt, and Rome, and Greece had so many gods you couldn't even keep track of them. And, and yet with these gods came laws that were far more restrictive and far, and far more involving than what God's Ten Commandments were. But that's what happens to us. Isaiah chapter 3. You know, there is a way, as it says, that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And that is literally true. All knowledge that we have is not necessary to be had. It just is not for the, for the best. He says in verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 3, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. The Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. 
And God is going to judge us as people, as a nation, for what we have done and what we are doing. Because it has to do with rejecting Him and rejecting His way. You know, we, we hear statements from leaders today that when you think of the, the which lead you, cause you to err, you know, whenever you try to pin them down, they say things like, uh, I don't remember, or uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, I just don't recall this. We hear these statements over and over and over again, and people are not willing to change. People are not willing to correct things. And it's no different today than it was back then. You know, David was, was of the four selections God made that we talked about. David was the only one that really and truly did repent and change that we have a record of. I don't know about Solomon. You know, you think of all the uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes that he wrote, the, the things that he mentioned that with all of his wisdom. You know, maybe he did repent. I, I don't know. That's between him and God. But the thing is, David, in all of his problems of what he did, he was the only one that truly turned back to God and really repented of what he was guilty of. And it's sad to see that it takes so long for somebody to do that. But David was one of the few that did. And yet, that helps us to understand what God will do for you and me as people who are sinners who break God's law and who do sometimes take things into our own hands. The question is, can man rule himself? That's what we came to answer through all this today. Well, the answer you find in Jeremiah chapter 10, you and I know this, we went through this at the feast here recently. That's the whole, probably one of the, some of the whole messages we heard at the feast was the fact that God's going to have to return because as people, we cannot rule ourselves. God's going to have to intervene. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. O, o Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his steps. Even with God's spirit, we have to work at it, don't we? You know, we can go from year to year. And hopefully, if you were to put your life on a graph, it would be going up getting better and better. But we have to work at it. You know, and that includes even being a minister. It's just as hard. Life is, is not easy. It's, you've, got to, you've got to continually work on yourself, to change yourself with God's help, to make decisions that you have to overcome this and overcome that. And you, as well, you know as well as I do, as you see the Passover approach, you begin to analyze your life over the past year and you think, yeah, I've, I've made some changes here and made some changes there, but I need to make a few more over here. And it's just, it's just a process of life and going through life and making those changes. And hopefully you can begin to exhibit those changes in your life where your family and friends and kids and grandkids will see this and, and they will hopefully make each generation better by learning to make some of these changes. And you and I play a big part in that. We are a light to the world. And, you know, we want to be a good light, not a bad light. And uh, I think all of us know we have to, to fight to be a good light, especially around people we know like our families. They're the ones we tend to take it out on or, or they're the ones that are aware of our weaknesses more than others. And we just have to do that. We have to get better as each year goes by. In conclusion, the one scripture that shows us where we're going to wind up, what's going to happen with mankind, 
and why we're going to have to have Jesus Christ return to this earth is in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 22. It says, And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Well, you and I understand that that is where life is, is headed. And that no matter what choices are made, whether it be our political system or somebody else's political system, it's not going to get any better. There may be a few bright spots here and there, but for the most part, it's going to wind up where Matthew said it was going to wind up through the inspiration of Jesus Christ. That there's going to come a point where there is going to be no saving us unless he were to return. I don't know about you, I'd like to see that happen today. You know, I wish, I, I wish above all things, not a, it's not a good wish necessarily, but... But I would love to see two guys just get into it and both of them push the buttons, have the missiles fly, and then just before they hit the ground have Christ return. Because it would save all this suffering and the tribulation that, that mankind is going to have to go through and, and that really is going to have to take place before Christ returns. You know, that's the last thing I want to see happen to mankind because you and I are still living. Our kids and grandkids are still living. And it says that it's going to be the worst time that mankind has ever experienced down through history. You know, I wish there was some way that wouldn't have to happen that particular way. I wish it could just happen where God could have Christ return without all of this taking place, but with mankind being to the point of literally trying to destroy himself. Because I don't know about you, but I'm ready for the kingdom of God. I'm ready for some change because we have muddied the water too much down through history from, eight, from day one with Adam and Eve. We've all gone the same route. And it doesn't matter who is selected or chosen for what. The tendency of man is to reject God and go his own way. But you and I already know that, don't we? We went through that at the feast the past few weeks and we understand so much of that from his word and we have been blessed far above anything we could ever imagine sometimes with God's spirit and with the, the knowledge that he's given us.